Change. Not many of us like it, do we? Some of you are saying, what's he doing? He's just ruined my whole Sunday. We're supposed to sing and we're supposed to pray and we're supposed to do it like this. We don't like change. I don't think it's just us here. I think it's kind of a universal rule of anything that's different, anything that's not in line with our traditions or what we've done in the past just kind of gets us and jars us in our heart a little bit and almost doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel normal. The passage I want to look at this morning, which is Acts chapter 7, as I said, it carries on, if you were here last week, from where Carl was. Um, Carl was talking um, about uh, the stuff that's preceding that and how they chose some deacons that were full of the Holy Spirit, full of wisdom. And Stephen is one of these men who's selected um, by the church to do that. And he is the first ever Christian martyr. He's the first man to die for his faith in Christ, if you like. Martyr comes to the word witness, so he's, he's witnessing. As a result of his witness, as a result of his proclamation, he's stoned to death, which is what I've just read at the end. It's pretty harrowing um, to be stoned to death, I imagine. And, uh, but that's the passage that we've got today. He's one of the deacons. He's a man full of wisdom and the Holy Spirit. So much so, if you look at chapter 6, verse 15, says that his face was like that of an angel. That there was, he was so full of the Holy Spirit, there was a glow about Stephen. So as you looked at him, you could tell that something was different. A, a little bit like you're looking at me now, and this beautiful light is just bouncing off my features, and it looks like I've got a glow, except it's just the light, and it's blinding me. It's different to, he actually glowed, a bit like Moses in the Old Testament. He had an encounter with God, and it changed his physical appearance. And uh, he's been speaking against the people, the Jews, if you like, the religiouses, kind of two precious things. They would hold two things really precious to them. One would be the temple, which is where they would worship, where they would do their business. And the second was their law, which would be their scripture, their words, what they were governed by. And uh, Stephen is being accused of basically blaspheming and having a go at both of these things. And so at the start of chapter 7... These religious people, they ask him, they say, well, are these accusations that have been made against you, Stephen, are these things so? So Stephen enters into this long discourse. It's the longest kind of sermon or discourse in the whole of Acts. So if you consider Peter's priest, um, the gospel in Acts chapter 2, and 3,000 have been added to his number. But this is even longer. And if you actually read it, if you've got a Bible in front of you, because I, mean, I don't know if we can get it on the screen in any places, I'm not sure. But it's... It's verging on, as you read it, you're kind of thinking, well, this seems boring, this seems unpredictable, this seems irrelevant. And if you actually went today and read some commentaries in Acts chapter 7, you'd find commentators in the Bible saying, well, Stephen's speech is just nuts. Stephen's speech is irrelevant. Stephen's speech has nothing to do with the charges that are laid before him. Well, actually, it's the complete opposite, and we'll see that a little bit this morning. His response, which we think is unpredictable, he talks about... Uh, Abraham, he talks about Joseph, he talks about Moses, he talks about Israel, and yet the charge is, are you blaspheming against God by saying these things? And yet he's talking about Abraham, Joseph, Isaac, Jacob, the lot of them. But Stephen actually gets the back story right, I want you to understand that, he, he, he looks back at the Old Testament and he understands as he interprets it, what it's really saying, and the religious people have got it wrong. I'll give you a little idea of what I mean by when you get the back story wrong, how it has an effect on your present circumstance. A few years ago, I think it's three and a half years ago, 
Uh, actually, my wife, Grace, which I think she's here, she might, yep, she's there. Um, we went to Anfield, the mighty fortress that is home of Liverpool Football Club. Uh. No. Uh, <laughs> And uh, we played one of the most boring teams in history, Aston Villa. And, and predictably, it was a nil-nil draw. Uh, this was the last time I've ever been to Anfield as well, which is a bit upsetting. But on the way, I've been kind of talking up with Grace. She's not been to many football matches, I've been to quite a few. I was talking it up, saying, oh, we're going to destroy the Villa. We're going to have them. Anfield's a mighty fortress, we're the 12th man. I was doing this whole footballing, aggressive bloke cliche thing that every bloke who loves football does. You know, you can sit, Gaz can sing beautifully, but I bet when he goes to a football match he turns into a hooligan. And he just shouts lyrics. I bet that's what happens. It happens to every man when they walk through the turnstile. And it's just footballing culture. And so there's a few chants going on and Grace is kind of learning them and getting it a little bit, and Villa are attacking for like the only time in the entire game they're in our half. One of their players is on the ball, and our guys just don't seem to be going for him. He's heading towards goal, unchallenged. And Grace, sat next to me, shouts out, and I mean properly shouts out, she goes, KILL HIM! <laughs> and I'm like, what? What have you just said? She's just shouted at the top of her voice for this player to be killed on the football pitch. And now, understandably, I'm kind of panicking, thinking, okay, we're going to get thrown out here. You can't just shout. At, you, I mean, you can say certain things, and you seem to be able to get away with all sorts, but you can't, you can't do death threats. I know Villa are rubbish, but you can't, we can't do that. And she just got it wrong. You see, I've been talking about, you know, the fortress and we'll destroy them. But it's all just metaphorical. It's all, come on, they'll have them. We'll do them over. Now, killing someone is a completely different context. Now, I know she didn't mean literally do that. But where I was kind of joking about we'll destroy them, she actually wanted our players to break his legs. And you can't say that and you can't do that. She'd gotten the backstory wrong. And it meant she was in completely the wrong place when she got up to speed. We haven't been back to Anfield since. And what I, I went to my first football game with Evangeline a few weeks ago, and I'm training her young so that we don't have the same problem. But Stephen, it'll make sense. Stephen's response, right? He starts almost at the beginning with the founding father of Jewish tradition. And he's basically saying that from Abraham to this point, you guys have got it completely wrong. You've got your backstory wrong, and in getting your backstory wrong, that's why you just killed the promised Messiah. Because you didn't understand who he was. You don't understand the scriptures. You don't understand truly what God is like. And we can do that, can't we? And we can jump to conclusions today about what God is like because we fail to understand his character. We fail to understand what he's truly like as revealed to us in the Old Testament. Often I hear, oh, the New Testament's awesome. The Old Testament, I hate it. It's boring. It's irrelevant. It's not if we understand it's all about Jesus. It's not if we understand there's a backstory and a reason for it. I'm not gonna, it's not going to be my major point, but it, it will help us to understand what Stephen's doing. He starts with Abraham, and when he talks about Abraham, he means his sons and the patriarchs as well, the founding fathers. Okay? And it says this, the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, so it's jumped a few generations, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of his affliction and gave him favour and wisdom before Pharaoh. This is verse 9 um, of Stephen's speech. 
He's facing charges of blasphemy and he's talking about Joseph. And the story that he's got so far is hardly conclusive. He's missed out huge parts of the story. So he's honing in and focusing on specifics and specific parts. He's making a point. And he majors on the fact that Joseph, if you know the story, was thrown into a pit by his own brothers and left for dead. Until one of his own brothers, Reuben, I think, actually plucked up the crew to say, no, we can't do this. We can't kill our brother. Let's just sell him into slavery instead. Because that's a far better option. And so that's what they did. And then they faked his death and made out to their father that he was dead. They rebelled against Joseph. And uh, the verse there says that but God was with him and rescued him out of his affliction and gave him favour and wisdom before Pharaoh. See, ultimately, Joseph is the one who has been betrayed, but God was going to use this man to rescue his people. If you know the story, Joseph becomes the second most powerful man in the whole of Egypt. Um, plans for there being uh, a famine, and so has enough food. And so when his brothers come, because they've run out of food and they're going to die, there's enough food in Egypt to be able to sort them out and help them. He rescues his people. He provides for them. And what Stephen's doing is showing firstly an angle. God's raised up someone to save the people, and yet he's been rejected by his own kind. He's not being rejected by the Egyptians. He's not being rejected by the foreigner. He's being rejected by his own brothers. He's being rejected by the people that are really close. And then he just jumps to Moses. He's like, what are you doing, Stephen? He jumps straight to Moses, the hero of the Jewish people. Once again, the recollection of Moses' story is really interesting. He misses out huge things, but he also includes specifics. Moses, this is what it says, verse 23. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they didn't understand you see, you fast forward to Moses' story and you have exactly the same story as you have with Joseph, is what Stephen is pointing to. God raises up someone to save the people. He's rejected by his own people, the people that he sought to save. I mean, verse 39 sums it up really. Our fathers refused to obey him, talking about Moses, and thrust him aside. And in their hearts they turned to Egypt. If you read Exodus, time and time again you have... The Israelite people saying, oh, let's just kill Moses. Let's get rid of Moses. Let's go back to Egypt. We had enough food. Were there not enough graves in Egypt that we need to be brought out here to be killed? And the story, again, is God's raised up this great leader of the people to save them, and he's been rejected. He's the rescuer, but he's rejected by his own people. It's like deja vu. The people who should know better are the ones rejecting the one who comes to save them. And so logically, Stephen then jumps and covers the whole of the rest of Israel's history up to the point that he's at where he's speaking. And he declares using words from Isaiah and says, God cannot be contained. He doesn't live in houses made by man. Rather, heaven is his throne. You'll see the quotation there. And, you know, religious people and people that don't like change like buildings, like owning stuff. It becomes our identity. This is churchianity versus Christianity. This is part of the reason that I changed it up this morning. You might think, oh, well, we always do this in the same way. Our tradition is that we sing some songs, we pray a bit, we preach, we sing some songs. Well, that's actually got nothing to do with mission, nothing to do with what we're reading in the Bible, nothing to do with the gospel, but everything to do with our culture and tradition. 
And this is kind of what's happening here. They've got this culture and tradition that goes back a long way. And Stephen's saying, no, it's all changed and you've not got it. Let me tell you how it works. And he delivers this line. And you kind of wonder, why did Stephen get stoned? This is why. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in hearts and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. Fancy being told that if you're the religious leaders. Not going to go down well. As your fathers did, so did you. Which of those prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Basically he's saying, your fathers, the religious, have a great track history of killing the holy and righteous ones. And guess what? You guys have done exactly the same as them. And so he uses the whole Old Testament to argue this point. And I want you to see, it's really important, this is why I did that little backstory thing, is he understands the Old Testament. He understands that the point of the Bible isn't just head exercise, but the point of the Bible is, it's God's rescue plan. When we're reading it, it's telling the story of how God wants to rescue you and rescue me. And it doesn't, that rescue plan doesn't just start when Jesus arrives on the scene, like some sort of added extra. I think it starts in the very first word of your Bibles, in the beginning. It's there from the start, works its way all the way through that God wants to rescue us, God wants to save us. But we have a habit of rejecting that. We have a habit of rejecting the one that's come to save us. You see, one of the problems is when we read our Bibles is we're not reading it through that lens. We're just reading it as a collection of historical documents or a collection of stories or a collection of things to just fill our mind with information. Do you know people that know their Bible really well? But it's just up here. You know, I want to know my Bible really well so it translates to my heart, so that it changes my outlook, changes the way that I live, so that when God says, be kind and compassionate, I just don't go, I think I should be kind and compassionate. I go, it needs to translate, and I need to be kind and compassionate to people. You see, religious people, it just stays up here and never makes the journey down here. For, this, for the people um, who stoned Stephen, they knew the Old Testament scriptures really well. Yeah, it hadn't translated to here. We can never argue that just knowing our Bible is enough. I mean, Satan, he knows the words of Scripture. It's not enough for him, is it? So it's never enough for it to just stay up here as an intellectual exercise. It's about God's rescue plan for us. And Stephen splits, I want you to see this, and this is why I've done this whole thing of going back. Stephen splits the Old Testament and his sermon, if you like, into there are two types of people. We have the rescuer, we have the redeemer, we've got our Joseph, we've got our Moses, we've got our David and our Solomon, the guys that built the temple. And then we've got the guys that rebel against them. We've got Joseph's brothers, we've got the whole of Israel, we've got all these kings that try and take power for themselves. He says, well actually guys, you're just like your father's. You're not with the rescuer, you're not with the redeemer, you're with Joseph's brothers, you're with Israel moaning in the desert. And that's the whole point of what he's trying to do, is that actually, he's trying to say, well, where do you stand, guys? That's kind of what I want to say this morning, is when we look at the story, we can be like, yeah, I'm with Jesus, I'm with that, but it's just up here, and in practice, we're not. It might just seem like a history lesson. The religious people say things like this, who made you a ruler and judge over us? They're described as stiff-necked, which is another word for stubborn, 
and they have uncircumcised hearts and ears, so there's no reality to their faith and they're deaf to the truth. They don't like change, in other words. Now, even though Stephen is saying what is completely true, it would mean changing their whole understanding of Scripture. So they don't like it. And the question that, and the point that I want to kind of ask this morning for us all is to just look at ourselves and say, well, actually, are we like them? Because I think most of the time we like to think we're like Stephen. But probably our hearts kind of, our default position is to be like the religious people. It's our cry of our hearts is, who made you a ruler and judge over my life? Who said I couldn't do this or I could only do that? Why are you judging me? Why are you oppressing me? I mean, that's the kind of language of the world as well, isn't it? But it's also our heart language a lot of the time. We just carry this kind of veneer about us. What Stephen said according to verse 54 caused the people to be enraged, so much so that they ground their teeth. I'm not going to demonstrate because I wouldn't have any teeth left, but it's just like this, kind of like Mutley, you know, but when he's not laughing. It's that kind of, it's just angry, hostile, so much so that teeth are just clenched and they're so angry at what's being said. If someone challenges us, if someone challenges our traditions, do we get angry and grind your teeth? Before I explain what we were doing this morning, you sat there grinding your teeth. Oh, this is stupid. Why are we doing it like this? There'll be someone here that's like that, because it would be me if I was sat there. But I knew I was in on the pod, so I was okay. Well, we don't like change, do we? We kind of grind our teeth a little bit, and we want to have a little bit of a moan, and we get angry. I remember once asking, it's a bit of a story, I remember once asking someone in church, um, that I'm never going to do this again, are flowers really necessary for a church service? Woo! <laughs> Seriously, don't go there. It was like Mount Etna. It was, it was just catastrophic. Because I got told that day that flowers are crucial to the life of the church. They're really important for mission. And uh, if you've got flowers in your church, people are more likely to give their lives to Jesus. Did you know that? Did you know that? It's true, completely true. They didn't like the fact that I was kind of asking, are flowers necessary? Well, I think we need to, and that's a silly example, but we have to consider our traditions. Just because we've always done something doesn't mean we always have to do it like that. Does that make sense? Just because my church experience and tradition says this is how it's done doesn't mean we're being biblical. Doesn't mean we're being God-honouring, actually. A sermon doesn't always have to come after we sing. Though our tradition would say otherwise, wouldn't it? We just have to consider that sometimes. Take, I mean, we might just, we're going to do things differently at this church to maybe that you've done in the church of the past. We might sing different songs or songs that you don't recognise or songs that you don't like. We might take communion in a different way than you've experienced before. But that's okay. Change is good. As long as we're seeking to be biblical with what we're doing. I mean, consider your own hearts. There might be different things that are going on there. I only like this type of worship. I can't stand interpretive dance. That's totally me. I've got to work on that. We should only pray like this. And I want to say our traditions prove nothing. Do we understand that? Our church traditions 
and what we think is Christianity proves nothing about our standing with God. Absolutely nothing. The type of songs that we sing, the type of prayers that we like, doesn't prove anything about where you're at in your relationship with Jesus. It's just things that we like or things that we've gotten used to. You know, we're not going to change things just for the sake of it. I don't think that's right. I don't think that's fair because we don't like change. So we're not just going to say, well, we'll, we'll sing facing this way this week just to be fun. You know, we're not, we're not doing silly things. But actually, change can be painful for us because it can affect our cherished buildings. It can affect our lovely rotors. It can affect our customs. How many of you would be a little bit upset today if I'd said, we're not singing with any music at all, or there's no tea or coffee. Instead, we're having Coca-Cola and water. I mean, I'd be delighted because I don't like tea and coffee. But, you know, this, it becomes the norm to have tea and coffee. It's okay to not have it. It's okay for us to make mistakes. It's okay for us to get things wrong. It's okay for us to change things. Surely these things have to all be negotiable in the life of a church, don't they? All of these kind of extra things have to be negotiable. And I think a true Christian walk is someone that's actually open to change. Now, I don't mean change in a couple of ways, but for example, God's never going to desert his people. And God's people is not buildings. This is the church here, it's the people of God. And God's word is not traditions, but it's scripture. So as long as we remember and hold to the fact that church is God's people, and God's word is this, and we're not seeking to change his people in terms of um, you know, the way, the truth, and the life, and access to Jesus, and we're not seeking to change the words of scripture, I think other things are negotiable. How we sing, what we do, whether we dance, whether we don't, what time we meet on a Sunday. Maybe we'll meet at 4 o'clock, we'll stop meeting at 10.30. Who knows? It's okay. It shouldn't matter. It's just change for us can be painful. Now, I want to kind of jump to the end of the passage, which is the bit that I read at the beginning. Because I think it, it kind of gives away for us. I've done all this kind of background work, but it gives away to us where we're at. You might be thinking, well, actually, yeah, you're right, I don't like change a lot, but it's okay, I deal with it really well. But I think we can get an insight into how we deal with other people and our problems by looking at this little passage at the end of it. How do we deal with opposition? How do we deal with our enemies? How do we deal with people that say, you are stupid, I don't like you, which happens a lot. How do we deal with those kind of things? Now, the angry crowd, when they didn't like and they were challenged by Stephen, what did they do? They got angry and ground their teeth. But look at what Stephen does when the people are angry and opposed to him. It's amazing. He falls to his knees and he says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. He's about to be killed by them. And he prays for them. He's about to be killed by them. And he says, God, forgive them. I forgive them. God, would you forgive them? Have mercy upon them. The people that are killing him. That's pretty groundbreaking, isn't it? You're about to be killed by some people for your faith. He's like, God, don't hold it against them. It's the same cry that Jesus gave from the cross. He's being crucified and he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. What's our heart when things change? Do we love our enemies? Do we love those who disagree with us? Do we love those who threaten our traditions? 
You know, are you still going to love me after this morning? After I preach, if you love me in the first place, you should do. Are you still going to love me that we preached before we sang? Or are you going to grind your teeth at me secretly? It's challenging for us, isn't it? You see, Stephen is the man here who is full of wisdom and full of the Holy Spirit. And he forgives them and he blesses them and he shows grace to them. God's been so gracious to us in giving his only son for us. We have to show grace to other people, don't we? We have to show favour and kindness and love towards them. And loving our enemies, I think, is one of the hardest calls that we have as Christians. You know, being called to come and sing songs and praise Jesus, that's great. But loving your enemies, that's really tough. Blessing those who persecute you, that's hard. But it's what we're called to do. And I'm learning, and I make mistakes, and I get things wrong, as we all do. But it's about where is our heart set towards? Are we set towards loving our enemies? Are we in a process of doing that? You see, if we want to be, and this is one of our cultural things, if we want to be a spirit-filled community, I believe we have to be really quick to forgive one another. Don't you think? Really quick to say, you know what, I got that wrong, I'm sorry. I've made a mistake. Please don't hold it against me. Because it just totally undercuts it, doesn't it? It's going God's way. And I think that's living a spirit-filled life. Because our heart, and what we want to do as a default, is to judge and criticise. We want to curse. If our enemies are at us, we want to say, Oh, I don't like those people. I wish that God would just get rid of them. That's what we want to say, isn't it? It's not just me, surely. I hope it's not just me. But what we're called to do is say, oh, bless you. I love you. You know, what you're doing is wrong, but, you know, bless you. <laughs> Don't hold this sin against them. You know, in the midst of pain and suffering, Stephen's cry is forgiveness, not vengeance. You'd forgive him for crying for vengeance, wouldn't you? You know, if he's been stoned, you know the Bruce Almighty clip where he's like, smite me, almighty smiter. You know, if Stephen had said that as his final words, you'd go, oh, you're being stunted up, I get it, but he doesn't. He says, forgive them. Don't hold this sin against them. And it just undercuts any problems. You know, if I've got an issue with someone, if there's something going on, there's, there's some need for an apology in some way, and I let it fester and just go on. It gets worse and worse, doesn't it? And the relationship breaks down and breaks down and breaks down until you get to a point that you've built up in your head that you can't possibly do it because it's going to be this really terrible conversation, and you've just left it too long. Whereas if straight away it's, you know, I got this wrong, I'm really sorry. Straight away the problem's dealt with, isn't it? And people are affronted by grace. You know, if you're, say you're um, at work, you're in work and you're taking stick for being a Christian. You know, and they're on your case or they disagree with what you're saying. Instead of being confrontational and wanting vengeance and aggression, it's like, just bless you. You know, I really, I really want to do good to you. I really want you to be blessed. I really want you to meet this God that I have. And he's not a God of vengeance and, and wrath. And he's a God of love. A God who I'd love for you to meet in the person of Jesus. It just undercuts the problem straight away, doesn't it? If, if you're kind to those who are nasty to you, they're kind of like, oh. Oh, what, what's going on here? Because the way the world works is I'm nasty to you, so I'll be nasty back. 
You started this, so I'll have revenge upon you. That's why we have so many wars. That's why we have all this stuff going on in the world. You know, um, That's why the stuff in Paris happened. I'm unhappy about this from six years ago, and so I'm going to do this. And then the French will be, well, I'm unhappy that you've done this, so I'm going to do this. And it just goes round and round and round. But if someone stops and goes, you know what, I forgive you. Just cuts it, doesn't it? It's countercultural, completely countercultural. We have to be quick to forgive, quick to hold our hands out, quick to apologise. And statements like, I'm sorry, but don't cut it. Don't ever say, I'm sorry, but I'm right. It's not really sorry, is it? I'm sorry, but you know, we should keep the organ. You know, we shouldn't. That's not, I'm sorry. It's, I'm sorry, and that's it. It stops there. I'm so glad that God doesn't say, you know, I forgive you, but there's this, 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 this. It's not forgiveness, is it? it? It doesn't work like that. We don't keep a record. We don't be people that keep grudges. How revolutionary would it be if every single person in this room, tomorrow morning, exercised grace to those who persecute Love the people that are giving them a hard time. I think it would make a huge difference in our workplace, at home, at school, even at home, you know? That's a struggle, isn't it? You know, someone nearly breaks your iPhone. What are you going to do? Is it World War Three, Or is it okay? You know, we've got a you've got a decision to make in those scenarios. And I think for all of us here, and I speak this to myself, so hear me right when I say this, that I think there's a need for repentance this morning. I think there's a need for us to, maybe not with one another, but to God certainly, to say, you know what, I'm sorry. To actually say, enough's enough with my attitude of vengeance or my attitude of hurt towards those who have persecuted us, towards those who have knocked us. And that actually makes way for, that, uh, for healing to take place in our hearts as well. For those people that make life difficult at work, to not grind our teeth, to not moan about it, but to, to say, God, you know, I need your help in dealing with this person. Would you help me to be gracious with them this morning? There's a great opportunity that's presented to us to do that today. To say, Jesus, we want to be full of your spirit. We want to be kind, compassionate, loving people. I think that's to be more like Stephen, and in his, which in turn is more like Christ. You see, the, the cost is, and this is the cost for us this morning, if, if you're prepared to do it, the cost of walking down this path of grace and forgiveness to those who persecute you, is you probably won't get justice in this life. You probably won't get justice. The rights probably won't be wronged for now, but there will be one day. And it means you'll take hits for Jesus. It means there'll be injustice towards you. It means people will say things that simply are not true. But actually, that's the calling. That's what it means to follow Christ. To be prepared to take a stand for Jesus. It means being countercultural. means bringing love instead of hate. It means bringing forgiveness instead of vengeance. So I want to give us the opportunity this morning for repentance. To, to actually say, yeah, God, you know, I am like these people that grind my teeth. This is me. I'm going to be praying it. 
That's my default position. That's where I go to. But I don't want to be like that anymore. I want to be changed. I want to be a new person. And it might be uh, trusting Jesus for the first time or the thousandth time with it this morning. But I think this passage leads to a response for us. It doesn't lead to just having some more head knowledge. It leads to action. It leads to actual change in our hearts and change in our lives. It means leaving this place determined to love and bless people. It means maybe actually there's people that you've got a problem with having a conversation with and forgiving them or asking for forgiveness from them. That's the applications and too often, particularly in the West, what we do is we read something and we go, that's great for the person next to me, but I'm not going to apply it to myself. And so we don't grow, we're not changed, we don't become a community full of life and a community full of the Holy Spirit. This verse in 1 John, if anyone says I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he's not seen. That's strong, isn't it? Anyone who says they love God but has no love in his heart for other people is a liar. It's what God has to say. I just want to kind of finish with this kind of little reflection on the end of the passage. And I think then we're going to just worship together. Is Stephen has an amazing legacy, doesn't he? He's the first, I mean, he's the first Christian martyr. First man to take a stand and, in a sense, be prepared to die for his faith. To take a bullet. It was not a bullet, but stones. A bullet would be today's equivalent, wouldn't it? And his passion for Jesus and his his um, seeking of truth meant he was right on the cutting edge of what God was doing. Bringing change to an establishment that had been there for hundreds, thousands of years. And saying, no, you've got it all wrong, it's time to change, it's time to revisit actually what you're doing. And he had this amazing moment of encounter with Jesus as he dies. Full of the Holy Spirit, Stephen gazed into heaven. And saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. It made me just think as I read that, it's almost, you kind of picture it, can't you? He's being stoned to death, there's kind of this mob mentality going on. And it's almost as if he's on a mountaintop and the clouds just clear. And maybe he just sees so clearly for the first time ever. And he knows the truth that, well, actually, Jesus is the one that's standing at the right hand of God. He beholds the glory of God. And it's more important to him than what's going on in the present. Whether he loses his earthly life or not, is pursuing the glory of God. It's having that encounter where Jesus is more important for him. And that could be something that's incredibly new. That could be something that means changing our life. That could be something changing our approach to church and Christianity and the traditions that we've always held to. And that might upset and rock your boat a little bit. But I kind of want to say that as a church, we're willing to change those negotiable things. Because I want us to be where God wants us to be. If God the Holy Spirit wants us to be involved in certain things in our town, even if it means changing things, even if it means moving venue, 
doing different things, meeting at a different time, I want to say we're going to do it. Because I don't want to be right on the cutting edge of whatever God is doing in our town. I don't want to be left behind. I don't want to be the people grinding our teeth that we're not involved in what God's doing. I mean, does that sound reasonable? Yeah, I want our church to have amazing stories of dramatic change. Where people have encountered the living God and their life is no longer the same. That it wasn't as it was before. I want us to have something that we're going to pass on to the next generation. That there's still a church going strong for them in 20, 30 years. In our town, in our nation. But I also pray that our change is one of grace and forgiveness. Now I'm not saying we're not being gracious and forgiving. I think we are. I think we're doing really well with that. But it's really important going forward that that is our position. To always exercise grace. To always exercise forgiveness towards one another. And you know when people come in and they see that. That's what's going to cause change. They'll see God's spirit just resting upon people. They'll see it glow about us. Because we'll be more concerned with beholding the glory of God than whether we've got X or Y sorted out. You know, I don't know what new things God's going to do this year here at Redeemer King. But I tell you, I want to be a part of it. I want to go with what he's doing and where he's going to lead us. And that means we've got to be prepared to be on the front line for Jesus. That means we've got to be prepared to do as Stephen does. Even though people will hurl rocks at us. Say, no, Father, forgive them. Because I want them to come into a relationship with Jesus. I want them to know the truth of that. Let me just pray. And uh, the guys are going to come. And uh, we're going to sing a bit together. Heavenly Father, we just uh, ask and invite your Holy Spirit to just come now. To just rest upon us but also to speak to us that there may have been uh, elements of uh, things that have just been said this morning that certainly apply to us. So Lord, we just ask that you forgive us for our sin, forgive us for our wrongdoing, help us to once again trust in Jesus and help us, Lord, to be in our hearts open to what you're doing, to be responsive to your spirit, to be open to change. Lord, would you take your words and not just leave them in our mind, but help them to change our hearts. That we wouldn't just have information overload, but we'd have changed lives. Help us to be gracious and loving. We get it wrong, but God, help us to be forgiving of those who harm us, because ultimately you've shown the greatest forgiveness ever in giving your one and only son for people that I've just constantly rebelled against you, as Stephen points out. And we're in that category too. So God, this morning we just pray you'd highlight things to us, you'd speak to us, and you'd forgive us for our sins, and help us to think of those who sin against us. For the sake of building our kingdom. In Jesus' name. I mean, there may be, it might not be people in this room, but there may be things that have gone off in the past for you. You know, it's a new church. There was churches before Redeemer King. I don't know if you knew that. These were ones in the town. And there may be 
things with where you were at before, where there's hurt and pain still. Where there's, there's got to be that forgiveness that takes place. And can I urge you that you be the one to do that? You be the one to say, no, I'm going to forgive you. Because it doesn't do our hearts any good to be holding vengeance and grudges against people. Um, and so what I want to do this morning is we're going to sing, right? not changing that all massively, but again, I want to have the opportunity for people to be able to respond, that we're down over here in the side for people to be able to be prayed with, to be prayed for. You might want to pray with the people that are around you. You know, there's no, as, as we worship, as we sing, that's what we're doing, but there's the freedom to be able to do that, to be able to pray with one another, to be able to bless one another, to be able to go and say, actually, we need to just, you know, we need to pray together, we need to. That would be wonderful, wouldn't it, if that was taking place? And there may be that's something that I just, at the very end there, about kind of past hurts and stuff, then we want to pray that, you know, you find forgiveness in your heart, that there'd be healing for you for past hurts too. So we want to offer that this morning as well. So that we can be spirit-filled people that love those who persecute us, that bless those who come up against us. Because I think that's the Jesus way. That's the thing that we're called to do, and that's what's countercultural in our, in our society, in our life.